Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Examining the Need for Fossil Fuels. Please welcome the president of the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Thank you all. Yes, someone in the, booty, in the audience said, no boots today. And, uh, you know, I don't wear boots every day. But anyway, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for being here in person. We have a, an immense audience online, and so welcome to, to those of you. And the reason we have a wonderful audience is because this topic is so timely. In fact, it's timeless. Yes, today we're going to talk about a book. Yes, today I get the privilege of interviewing my friend, Alex Epstein. Yes, today we're going to talk about energy policy, but really we are going to have a conversation about human flourishing. And we want to invite you to be thinking about questions to ask. Alex and I will talk for a little bit, as is the custom here at Heritage, and then whatever is on your mind, we will be able to get to at least a handful of questions. And obviously when we conclude there, we have a book for you and Alex has very graciously agreed to stick around, sign those books and have some one-on-one -on -one conversations with you. This is what Heritage does. And I can tell you, having known Alex for the better part of the last decade, this is also what Alex does. So we look forward to the conversation. Please join me in welcoming our friend, Alex Epstein to the stage. Welcome. All right. You have a fan club. So, you also have a not fan club, which I've noticed on Twitter. Where are they? Well, hopefully they're in the audience. And, and we say that not at all to be bombastic for two reasons. First of all, that's what Heritage does. This is a think tank, so we do a lot of thinking. But also, uh, you will find, secondly, that Alex is someone who isn't only one of the most rigorous thinkers I know, and I, I mean that not to be patronizing but someone who actually loves the conversation for the sake of getting to the truth. So feel very free, as you, anyone always should at Heritage, to ask whatever questions on your mind. But before we get to audience questions, I have a lot of questions for you. Okay, I gotta but, be succinct. <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah. yeah, a historian and a philosopher being succinct. We'll see how we do. Alex, I wanna get to what prompted you to write the book beyond the obvious. And the obvious would be that we have this national, even international conversation about energy policy, about the so-called climate emergency. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of that. But for you, at this particular point in your professional journey, what prompted you to sit down and take on such an immense task? This is a very thick book with a lot of footnotes and a lot of charts and graphs. It's, it is very well researched. So I guess part of the context here is I had this book that came out in 2014 called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And so there's a, there's a um, common motivation, which is that the world thinks that fossil fuels are this planet-destroying addiction that needs to be rapidly eliminated. And I think that they're this world-improving good that needs to be expanded. And I think when you think the whole world is wrong about something and you're a writer, it's a good topic to write about. So that's kind of, but then there's a question of why do you write another book uh, on this? It's very similar, right? It's really about energy. Now, so this one's more focused on the future. So, and, it, and it's much longer, what, for reasons I'll get into. But the, the experience I had was 
I wrote this first book in 2014 in six months, which I still don't understand how I was able to do that. And it, it almost killed me. But I wrote it, and it, it, in a sense, did better than I expected. It really influenced a lot of people. It actually got people in industry to start standing up for themselves, which I found uh, cool. It, it had all these positive effects. And over the years, I felt like, well, the, the need for this is even greater, because the thinking is getting worse in many ways. But also, I know way more factually, and most important, I know way more about how to explain the issue clearly. And I thought that if I spent time on a book, my ability to uh, explain the issue clearly would radically evolve even more. I knew that I knew that I was at a higher level than I was in 2014, say in 2018, but I knew that there was so much further to go. So I thought, well, the best thing I can do is just totally do a redo of this general topic, which is very unusual in writing. Usually you just pick a new topic, but I thought, well, this is the topic that I still think is most important, and I, and I think I can make a much better impact. So I think of it like software or hardware. So you know, you had the iPhone, and then the iPhone 4. And the iPhone 4 was this total revolution because it had this amazing new camera and this amazing new screen. And so I was like, okay, this is going to be my iPhone 4. And happily so far, it's, it's had a lot of the results I wanted. It sold half as many copies already as the moral case sold in almost eight years. And more and more people are having the reaction of, I expected to disagree with this, and you really convinced me. And that's what it's, it's architected to help you if you already agree, become a better champion but it's most of all architected to take somebody who's heard everything in the culture and step-by-step step persuade them that actually the way you've been taught to think about this doesn't make sense. And if you think about it in a pro-human way and you really look at all the benefits and the side effects of fossil fuels carefully, fossil fuels are actually really good and we should use more of them. So I'll do something that you will not do. Okay. Uh, at least, you, I mean, you would do it on cue, but I'll do it for <laughs> you as a, as a gracious host and hopefully wet the whistle of folks here to, to read the book and people online, of course. This is near the beginning of the book, Alex. This is what you write. I'm going to try to persuade you that if you want to make the world a better place, one of the best things you can do is fight for more fossil fuel use, something you just talked about. But you continue, while we are almost universally told that more fossil fuel use will destroy the world, I'm going to make the case that more fossil fuel use will actually make the world a far better place a place where billions more people will have the opportunity to flourish. I want to emphasize that. A place where billions more people will have the opportunity to flourish, including to pull themselves out of poverty, to have a chance to pursue their dreams. And this likely will likely seem craziest of all, to experience higher environmental quality and less danger from climate. I suspect one or two people in the world have challenged that. <laughs> right. It's, it's, to, it's one of these things where it's, it's not a minor disagreement. It's, really? It's a 180-degree disagreement. And, and then part of what makes that challenging, and this is part of why the book is so long and structured the way it is, is not just a 180-degree disagreement with kind of random people. It's with what we're told is the unanimous expert view. So it's we're told that all the experts say this, that we need to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels. And I'm saying, no, we need to use more of them and, and it's just, it totally contradicts things, and it totally contradicts allegedly, or I keep stressing allegedly, kind of what all experts and scientists think. So there's a real question of why should you consider, even consider this? And then by the end, I'm like, you're going to agree with me and say, yeah, the way everyone is thinking about it is wrong. And I actually think it's pretty straightforward. I think we can establish most of it here, but it takes, you know, 420 pages to fully get it. So... Why don't you walk us through the first steps of that and just, just pretend that 
I'm a devil's advocate. Sometimes in conversations we have, we play that role with one another for the sake of sharpening our, our thinking and especially our messaging. So let's just assume I'm someone who reads that sentence and says, Alex, it seems like there's a unanimity of opinion right. by scientists. And how in the world can you say this merely being a philosopher? Right. So there are kind of two, two types of answers. to this. So one is really recognizing something that we don't talk about enough, but that is very important to think about as citizens, which is that what we're told, I want to emphasize this, what we're told, not what we're told the experts think, not necessarily what they think, but what we're told they think has historically often been very wrong and in our view, 180 degrees wrong. Because I'm saying that what we're told the experts think is 180 degrees wrong. One important point is this is not without historical precedent. So historically, what we're, told, what we're told the experts think supported slavery, eugenics, all manner of racism, you know, including under eugenics, forced sterilization. So things that almost everyone say, that's totally wrong. I would never consider that, right? This is totally evil. And yet often, the smart people in a society allegedly thought this. And so whenever learning that, that really always made an impression on me of how do I avoid saying yes to that? Because it's so naive to think oh, well, those past generations, like, they thought racism was okay. But, of course, I never would had I been there. It's like, really? Are we genetically any different than them? We're not, not in any significant way. So kind of what protects us? We have to understand that, and there's a question, what's going on, and then how do we protect ourselves against it? And how we protect ourselves against it is partially we need to think independently. But what goes wrong, I had to really come up with a new concept because I didn't think there was a good way of explaining this. It's a concept I call the knowledge system. And the quick version of this is the knowledge system is the system of institutions and people that we rely on for expert knowledge and guidance. And so, you know, in the, the, with COVID, for example, we had the idea of we're told, hey, the experts say you need to lock down. But what that actually means, because you don't actually talk to the expert researchers, what's actually going on is there's a four-part system. And the, the quick version of it is it, there are researchers who do the actual specialized research. But we don't interact with all of them. There's no way to do that. There's too specialized, there's too much. Then there are what I call synthesizers. So these are people who take what researchers find and they dramatically distill it. And so in, in the realm of uh, climate, for example, there's what's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And so they take all the research and they distill it. And it's very important to know that even if all the researchers are totally honest and right, the mere act of a bad synthesis can totally distort the field. And one thing I observe early in Fossil Future is the IPCC, which is very heralded and has some reason to be, but a lot of reasons not to be, they omit a crucial issue, not only in their summaries, but in their multi-thousand page syntheses, which is they omit the issue of how safe are we from climate. Now, this is a climate report for humans. So you would think it'd be very relevant how many people are dying from climate but they do not once have any mention of how many people are dying from these climate disasters, what's happening to them. And that's curious because we have really good data on this. And if you learn this, the fact, it, you start to become suspicious because actually the data show that climate-related disaster deaths have plummeted. They've gone down by a rate of 98% over the last 100 years. As we can talk about, it's very clearly connected to fossil fuels because fossil fuels provide the irrigation that alleviate drought, the heat and air conditioning that alleviate extreme temperatures, et cetera, et cetera. But what I want to stress here is, even if all the researchers are right, the researchers who found all the climate-related deaths going down have been omitted from the synthesis. So what we're told, the, what the synthesis of expert researchers say is a total distortion, even just by that fact 
of what experts think. So even just that can totally ruin the issue because then all you would hear about would be negative impacts, but you wouldn't be aware that there are also positive things driving down climate-related deaths. And then after that, there are what's called disseminators. So these are people who take the synthesis, condense it more, give it to the general public, like the New York Times, the Washington Post. Anyone who's ever been a specialist in a field has had the experience of looking at how the field is reported, and it's just bizarre. It's unrecognizable from reality. If you ever had a story about you, which I unfortunately had in the Washington Post a few months ago, uh, it is not accurate. You can basically guarantee that. So We've that, observed that at the Heritage yeah, Foundation I'm sure. once in a while. Um, so you can have, again, even with, there's no guarantee all the researchers are right or well-motivated, but even if they are, again, the synthesis can get distorted, the dissemination get distorted, and then the final thing that can get distorted is what I call the evaluation. So let's say, the, let's say it's true that, that fossil fuels make drought 10% worse. Let's say that that's been synthesized and disseminated and it's accurate. There's a question of how do we evaluate what to do about it? And what I have observed, and this is really the first chapter of Fossil Future, is that we think we evaluate these negative side effects of fossil fuels or alleged ones while ignoring the benefits. So in the case of drought, that means ignoring our ability to irrigate and to have drought relief convoys that make us safer from drought. But that's insane. You can't look at the consequences of fossil fuels on drought without looking at the benefits. And yet that's what we do. And I, I observe this happens at the highest level. For example, one of the leading what I call designated experts who's supposed to be like the spokesman for the whole system, Michael Mann, who was just very prominent in telling Manchin that he ruined the world until I guess Manchin just saved the world by giving $400 billion in subsidies to green energy. But you know, Michael Mann is treated as this is the most brilliant guy we should listen to him. He has a whole book on fossil fuels that talks about agriculture and doesn't once mention any benefits, even though fossil fuels provide the fertilizer that agriculture depends on and the fuel that agriculture depends on. So what we see is we have this knowledge system that clearly has errors in synthesis, clearly has errors in dissemination or the potential, and in evaluation, it clearly ignores the benefits of fossil fuels. And so the structure of the book is basically in chapter one, I, I introduce the concept of a knowledge system, how it can go wrong, how even with good research, it can distort issues 180 degrees. In chapter one, I show we're ignoring the benefits. Chapter two, I show that we're historically, the knowledge system is catastrophizing the side effects. And then in chapter three, I go into why is this? Why do we have such a dysfunctional knowledge system that looks at fossil fuels in a way that is insane? Like if you had a knowledge system that looked at prescription drugs and it only, it ignored all the benefits and it only catastrophized the side effects, no one would ever take a drug and you'd think that's crazy. And yet that's the way we're taught to think about fossil fuels. So that's how the experts can be 180 degrees wrong. And that's some evidence that they actually are. One what we're told the experts say, I should always say that, not, yeah. not the expert researchers themselves. That, that observation, but you're very methodical and you know, not at all partisan, not at all ideological diagnosis of that is a real contribution to our understanding of climate and energy policy. But another one, which is, I think comes from your background as a, as a philosopher, something that I've learned from you over the years, is not accepting a, an insufficient at best framework from those who believe that in fact, not only is there a climate emergency, but it is the top 10 priorities of all policy the areas. Top, top one priority. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so speak to that and, and perhaps equally importantly, speak to the framework that you would suggest, and you, I think, do a very good job of proving in your book, we ought to be talking about to be making those decisions. Sure. So the, the part one of the book is called framework. And so I love the term framework because it, it's, it has a really good physical analog that, has, that works well mentally. So framework is a starting structure. So a building, the thing about a starting structure is it determines most things about a structure. 
So the the you know starting structure of a building, like when you're rebuilding this building that you know the building next door, that the the basic framework of it is going to determine a lot about what that building ends up being. And so the same thing is true with our thinking. And in philosophy, I focus on three types of elements of framework. So one is our thinking methods. And so I just talked about a big one. Do we, what I call, look at the full context? Do we carefully weigh both benefits and side effects? Or do we just look at negative side effects and, in fact, overstate, or as I call it, catastrophi call it catastrophizing? That's one. But then there's also the issue of assumptions. What are your basic assumptions about how the world works? And what I've observed and what I think you can observe with climate and the Earth more broadly is people have what I call the delicate nurturer assumption. So the idea that the climate or the Earth is this perfect thing that our impact can only ruin, and in particular, it's stable. It doesn't change too much. It's sufficient. It gives us what we need, and it's safe, but our impact ruins it. And so that, if you think about the Earth and climate as a delicate nurture, you are going to be afraid of anything that impacts it, any industry, including fossil fuels. But in fact, the Earth is not a delicate nurture. It's what I call wild potential. It's dynamic, deficient, and dangerous, and our impact generally makes it better because we generally produce new value, and we make dangerous things safer. We neutralize a lot of dangers. So that's another way in which the starting structure of the thinking affects everything. So if you have somebody who's only looking at negatives and has the delicate nurture view, they're going to assume that fossil fuels are going to cause a catastrophe because they can't see the benefits. And they, they have this assumption that any impact in the future, it's going to bring us to this hell on earth. Even if it hasn't in the past, of course, it's going to happen in the future. That's why all these, quote, experts who are always wrong, we think they're going to be right because we accept their basic assumption. And then the third issue, uh, and arguably the most important one, is, is values. So when we're evaluating this question of what do we do about fossil fuels, there's this question of, okay, when you're evaluating something as good or not and having benefits or not, there's a question of, well, what's your goal? Because what you're after, depend, it's, that determines how you measure value, what I call your standard of evaluation. And with this issue, the dominant goal that we accept, that most people accept, is eliminating CO2 emissions at all costs. If you look at all the policies, like net zero by 2050, they're all obsessed with how do we get rid of CO2 emissions as soon as possible. They don't talk about empowering the world. They don't talk about global human flourishing. They talk about let's eliminate CO2 as quickly as possible. Now, that is not a defensible goal, and I believe its origin is this anti-human goal of eliminating human impact on Earth, which I think is the goal of the modern green movement. In any case, the way we concretely think about it is eliminating CO2 emissions at all costs. And if you think of it that way, if that's your goal, you're going to ignore the benefits of fossil fuels, including there are many benefits to climate. And so my goal that I operate with on the book is advancing human flourishing on Earth. And a big part of that is empowering all 8 billion people, because if you're not empowered by low-cost, reliable energy, you can't use machines to become productive and prosperous, and then the world is a really bad place. So that's how I spend a quarter of this book on framework, because if you understand what I call the anti-impact framework versus the human flourishing framework, so if anti-impact framework is human impact is bad and we should eliminate it, the planet is a delicate nurturer, so if we impact it, it's going to ruin us, and therefore we should only really look at the side effects of fossil fuels, not the benefits. Like if, if you have that framework, you're going to automatically conclude fossil fuels are evil. And if you have the human flourishing framework, where it's the, goal is to, um, the goal is to advance human flourishing on Earth, the Earth is wild potential that needs to be impacted a lot, and we're going to look carefully at the benefits and side effects. That doesn't guarantee, that doesn't prejudice you toward any conclusion, but you will be have totally open eyes as to the benefits of fossil fuels, and you also will not assume that any impact, whether the impact of the benefits of using them, like industry, 
or the side effects, you won't assume that CO2 is going to end the world. You'll actually look at the facts. And I think if you do that, it's pretty obvious fossil fuels are amazing. So let me ask you one more question, and then we'll get to audience questions. So if you have a question you came in with or one that you now have be formulating that, we'll get to that in just a couple of moments. My question is also from a devil's advocate position, because obviously there are... You can are, tell it makes me super uncomfortable when people challenge my views. That's, that's why I keep <laughs> no, coming I back to it. Yeah, that's why I keep coming back to it, just to show, <laughs> actually, you model civil discourse so well, which is an attribute we honor here at Heritage. So the question is, and, and I'm asking this because often, as I have conversations with people who would, who would have a disagreement with you and me about this policy, they will say, okay, I accept that there actually isn't a unanimity of opinion among scientists. I accept that you know, what's portrayed as a, a synthesis of the data by the United Nations for whatever reason isn't. And yet, Kevin and Alex, I mean, isn't it really bad what we're seeing around the world? And isn't it good, therefore, for us to be investing in things like wind and solar energy so that we can prepare for the future? What's your response? I'm laughing just because if you accept the framework I gave, that's a funny statement in, in both ways. So I recognize look at what's, that, look at what's happening around the world. So let's look at what's happening around the world. So let's leave aside the past two years because there are some exceptional circumstances, including deliberate suppression of energy production, which is actually causing a lot of problems right now. But if you look at just say, let's just say, look, look at 1980 to 2020. I happen to be born in 1980, but it's a pretty good benchmark of the modern world. Because since 1980, we've certainly been told to get off fossil fuels. So since 1980, you know, how has the world been? Well, in 1980, more than four out of 10 people lived on less than $2 a day, extreme poverty. You know, by 2020, it was down to one person. So we have billions of people who got out of extreme poverty. That is a much better world in my book. And yet that knowledge is so little known that a survey of college educated people in the UK, only 12% of them thought that extreme poverty was getting better. 55% thought it was getting worse. These are college-educated adults. They have no idea what's happening to poverty during the greatest decrease in poverty in human history. I mentioned also climate-related deaths going way, way down. So people are far safer from climate even than they were 40 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. You know, all the other amazing things about the world. Earth, by the way, has also gotten a lot greener. So if, you, if people are looking at the world and saying, look at it, it's so bad, there are only two possibilities, and they're not mutually exclusive. One is wild ignorance about how much of a be better place the Earth has become for human life, how much of a better environment it is for us. Or two, the standard of evaluation of the world is not advancing human flourishing. Because if, you're, if, you're, if your standard is eliminating human impact, the Earth has gotten worse. Why? Because there are more people being more prosperous with more development. So we've impacted the Earth more. If your goal is to eliminate human impact and we've impacted the earth more, then that's evil. Just like people, I give this analogy, I think it's a good one. If people who think that animal testing is intrinsically evil and our goal should be animal equality, which they often call animal rights, they think even if we, you, we use animal testing to save human lives, that's a bad thing. The world has become worse because their goal is animal equality, not saving human lives. So this is very important. The first part of it is if somebody just looks at the world and thinks of it as bad, which of course is what most people think, again, either it's total ignorance or huge ignorance or not looking at it from a human perspective. And I think actually most people who are pro-human upon reflection are still not looking at the world from a human perspective. Otherwise, otherwise we would be very concerned about the, when we're looking at the world, 
the first thing we'd think about is 5 billion people living under less under $10 a day versus we are far more obsessed with a polar bear moving from one piece of ice to another than all the poverty in the world. So I think that, and then there, I forget the other thing, uh, but well, oh, oh, the other thing, which I found funny was just, shouldn't, it's always, you put it perfectly the way it's put, like, shouldn't we like invest a little bit in alternatives? Shouldn't we explore this? It's put so euphemistically because the actual thing is let's forcibly outlaw our right to use fossil fuels and then promise that solar and wind will replace them. I am not, I am the biggest advocate in the world of experimenting with your own money and allowing consumers to choose things, right? But this is very different. There is not happening. Even you look at a microcosm, the Biden administration, Joe Biden didn't come in and say, hey, like I'm really gonna encourage the solar and wind industry to come up with reliable, low cost electricity, go do whatever you want. He immediately shut down a pipeline and banned leasing on federal land. So he's, the whole world's pattern has been, let's progressively outlaw fossil fuels on the promise that solar and wind can replace them. So what we have is both people have this bizarre view of the world where they can't see how much better it's getting. And then also this total distortion of what's being proposed, which is that the fossil fuels that make the world so good are gonna be rapidly eliminated when there's no evidence at all of a viable replacement. Thanks for that. Well, I know those of you who are here in person are might, might be here to ask Alex some questions. And so we'll get to a few of those before we break into the foyer for some book signing. So I'll just ask you to raise your hand if you're interested in asking a question, wait for the microphone so that we can all hear and our online audience can hear. Yes, sir. Um, I'd like to know how you think nuclear power fits in with the overall energy needs of the world. Great question. So. I think it has almost unlimited long-term potential to need, meet those needs. I think it has also been tragically over-regulated to the point of criminalization where its current ability is incomparably less than it could have been without that. And the evidence here is in the 70s, we had relatively low cost, very reliable, very clean, very safe nuclear. And now the costs have risen on the order of 10 times even though we know more. So nuclear should be cheaper, but it isn't. One of the big indicators of what the problem is, is it it's gone from four years to make one of these things to 16 with a very high chance of cancellation. So it's just become incredibly expensive. So I, one of my big projects now, I have this thing called the Energy Freedom Platform that I'm promoting here. It's why I'm in town actually. And number five point is decriminalize nuclear energy. So I think it has unlimited potential, but we need radical reform. It's not a, certainly not enough to subsidize it and it's not enough to just fund research. You need to change the whole apparatus that's making it prohibitively expensive. Thank you for that question. Yes, sir. Hi, uh, I was curious. I know that we've got this, uh, this issue of framing and I think that the frame of the green movement is very pervasive, but where do you think are the best places to invest in a pro-human frame? Can you, uh, let me just follow up. So what do you mean, the, like what would be an example of places to invest? Um, for example, ESG on Wall Street. So we get a lot of investment into ESG and considerations from, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars each year. I would suspect that if we can change the frame on which ESG is making its assessments, that that would be a good place to invest our money. However, are there other places that you would so, so you're saying like, where should we invest our, our attempts to change the framework? So we should change the framework exactly. of ESG. ESG is a very, so it's very important that ESG itself 
is an incredibly problematic framework in the first place, uh, developed substantially at the UN, which is, in my view, almost always uh, a problem. I'm much more negative on the UN than even most people considered on the right. So that's a discussion for another day, maybe. But it's, it's certainly suspicious that the UN is creating the dominant framework that business is operating under, given what expertise could the UN possibly have at successful business. It's mostly failed states with terrible economies. How could it possibly, and a bunch of bureaucrats and academics, what could they possibly know about how to run a business? And then ESG is treated as these universal norms of how to run a business. Anyone who claims they know the universal principles of how to run a business, that's a pretty bold claim. We know the right environmental things and the right social things. And if you look at any of their specific ideas, they're almost all obviously terrible. Uh, like basically it, social means racism. I mean, let's just be real. It's just like, let's, let's, let's have a certain percentage of people of different skin colors and that's how we're gonna judge people and that's the kind of diversity that matters. It's, it's such a mess. So there's this question of, do you reform it on the grounds of ESG or do you even try to reframe? So my approach has been, I've, I wrote this document, you can check it out on energytalkingpoints.com uh, called uh, LVC, Long-Term Value Creation. I think that's a better way of thinking about it. Another cool effort here that's bigger is a, a cool guy named Vivek Ramaswamy who wrote Woke Inc. and I've gotten to know. He uh, has something called excellence capitalism. So they're really trying to replace ESG instead of reframing. But insofar as you are reframing it, you should absolutely talk about environmentally, you need to look at how fossil fuels and energy make the world a much better environment. You need to factor in all the kinds of data I'm talking about. Thanks for the question and for the response. Ma'am, I think you had a question. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, I would like to know the definition of fossil fuel and also like uh, in terms of like current uh, carbon intensive world, how do you see the feasible way to like uh, produce more fossil fuel, like using CCUS or like a blue hydrogen? I want to know your ideas. Okay. So definition of fossil fuel. So the way I think of it, it, it's, it sounds a little bit technical, but I'll just quickly say it. So it's, it's basically a high, you know, high energy hydrocarbons derived from ancient dead life. And so the quick version of that is high energy hydrocarbon. So hydrocarbon is something that's primarily a combination of hydrogen and carbon, which has stores a lot of chemical energy that you can release easily through burning. So that's what all of, you know, coal is a solid version, oil is a liquid version, gas is a gaseous version of that. And then it's called fossil because at least a lot of it is derived from ancient life, including plants and plankton, you know, that decomposed and got compressed by natural forces into something that with a fairly small amount of refining can be this amazing fuel. So it has these qualities of, I talk about in chapter five of the book, it's abundant, there's a lot of it because there was a lot of ancient life. Uh, it's naturally stored, which is very important. So nature kind of stored the fuel this way for us or the potential fuel this way. And then it's very concentrated, which particularly for transportation is good, but in general concentration is good because you, know, you have smaller sizes, which makes things more economic. Uh, in terms of the technologies you mentioned, uh, n neither of those is particularly promising. So with carbon capture, carbon capture is obviously good if it's economic. That is, if you can use the CO2 as an actual industrial input or other value, that's good. It's a fairly limited thing. So most of the CO2 that we emit, there is no cost-effective way to capture and none on the horizon. Uh, the major ways that would scale cost a huge amount of money and no one is gonna pay them on a large scale. 
so and then blue hydrogen and stuff or green hydrogen these are very speculative and they're mostly i think driven by political factors and wishful thinking versus actual market evidence so i think the evidence as i talk about in chapter six is that to have abundant energy for the world is going to require more fossil fuels and more co2 emissions for the foreseeable future i don't think that's a problem because i think they have a modest warming impact there are a lot of reasons to desire warming warming is definitely not uh all bad it's not i'm not sure whether it's mostly bad or mostly good but in either case the energy we get is much more important than any conceivable climate change um, and if you ever did run into a problem with warming, which I don't foresee, uh, we have ways of cooling the earth, and that should actually be your focus. But uh, under no circumstances should you consider depriving the world of energy. Uh, so that's, that's my basic approach. Great exchange. Thank you. None over here? Yes, ma'am. And we'll come to you, sir. Um, when you wrote the book, who, is your, who was your um, audience, your main audience? Was it someone who is on the fence? Was it really like a hardcore climate person? or people in this room like who are, who did you write it for no, definitely not you guys don't read it just, <laughs> <laughs> no so my um i got asked this i was on the hill today and, and a, a politician asked me this and so my answer is i always write to people who expect to disagree with me or at least have some inclination but it, that's not this i think of it as a non-supporter of my views who is skeptical that's different from a committed attacker there's certain people like if they knew my views, like former Vice President Al Gore, I don't write for him because I don't think he's reachable on the issue. For certain people, it's so their identity for me to be wrong that it would be a heroic thing. I mean, for Al Gore, really mean, I, I would admit that most of my life has been an incredibly negative uh, effect on the world. Everyone else would be much better off had I never been born. Like that would actually have to be his view. And, and I think even if that's true, you should admit it, but I'm not holding my breath for anyone to admit that. But most people are not invested like that. But most people are very skeptical. So I was right for people who expect to disagree. And that I find that helps people who are more inclined to agree because it gives them better arguments. I never like to write stuff that's kind of insider because then you're assuming too many things. And often your insider audience doesn't fully understand those things. So yeah, that's, that's uh, occasionally I'll have a conversation. Like if I know some, my researcher, for example, he and I have been working together for 10 years. I don't explain stuff to him from scratch because we're aligned and I know he knows all the things very thoroughly. But when I'm talking to general, the general public, uh, anything public, yeah, I'm speaking as if to a general audience and then I hope people who are inclined to agree learn from me how to do that better. Great question, thank you. This gentleman down here, Mike's coming down your way, sir. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to know your views on coal gasification and how is the economy, I mean, uh, do you think it's going to be economical and prospectus in having more coal gasification for making fertilizers, ammonia, and... Yeah, it's, I don't have a strong opinion on I mean, that. It's, it's a lot more plausible than some of the other technologies that come up. So this is trying to, you know, get kind of gas. I mean, it's not, it's not gas. Fossil fuel terms are weird. Like, we call things natural gas, but it's, the key thing is methane, which is the core thing, so it's CH4. So it's basically getting that from coal and then using that for the things that we use, quote, natural gas for, really what we use methane for. I think there's some promise there. You know, there's some companies now that are, that are claiming that they can separate coal into like a really clean solid, into an effect, something close to diesel fuel and into gas. So in general, I am very optimistic about 
the economics of new uses of hydrocarbons that are not politically driven. So I think there's some potential there, but I don't have a specific opinion about the economics of gasification. Yes, sir. Mike's coming your this direction. Just take a minute. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a very insightful uh, conversation. Uh, my question has to do with the theme of, um, um, you know, individuals having an ignorance for the human flourishing that fossil fuels have allowed. Um, you know, just recently I was having a conversation with a friend, and he had this. He said this phrase that just made an impact on me, and he said that, you know, humans are a cancer on Earth. And you know, it's just like it's a very powerful statement. So, what do you what do you think that this hostility for human civilization, this hostility for human life, reflects uh, of given in to that pessimism? So, I think the the core of what I call the anti-human impact framework, or the anti-impact framework, it amounts to like human impact on Earth is immoral and it's self-destructive. And so another perspective on that I'll sometimes call the perfect planet premise, which is that absent human impact, the planet is morally perfect. That is, it's like in a perfect state. That's the state of goodness that we can only ruin by our impact. And the other is this, is this idea that in practice, if we impact it, it's going to all self-destruct. And so usually when people have this view of it as a cancer, it's a combination of that. They think there's something just morally perfect about a humanless earth and anything we do is bad but then that's always sup almost always supplemented with this practical idea that in practice if we impact it it's going to punish us because it's, it's hard for people to admit being totally anti-human so it kind of serves to if they say well no i don't hate humans i just recognize that we're part of this delicate interconnected balance and we're leaving outside the balance and it's all going to collapse and it's going to hurt us so the fact that I claim the population should be a billion people, which say Michael Mann has done, it's not because I hate humans and I'm anti-human. I actually like humans, even though I'm talking about an idea that implies killing seven billion humans. So I think it's, and I talk about this in depth in chapter three, it's, it's, I think you have to understand both. You have to understand this false idea that the earth is this delicate nurturer that our impact will ruin, and, but also this idea that it's just wrong for us to impact it because it's morally perfect and the cancer that cancer analogy or metaphor really shows that you're not having a goal of advancing human flourishing because the organism you're focused on is the earth apart from humans. Like when you see, God, I saw this new propaganda thing. I don't know how widespread it was on LinkedIn, but this, they made this atrocious kids book about fossil fuels. Of course, it had nothing about the benefits, but it just had this happy earth and then it was, it just had the earth was the perfect temperature before us. I don't know where they got this from because the earth has been many temperatures. We, we got the perfect temperature and then it was, the earth was, ha was smiling. And then we changed the temperature, the earth got really sad. I mean, this is being shown to babies is terrible. It's so bad, but, but that's really kind of the view that we have. It's like the earth was this perfect thing that we were given and then we ruined it. I mean, you could think of it as like original environmental sin. Everything that we do to the earth is bad, but again, people can't fully Admit, they can't fully admit that they're that anti-human and many aren't. So they have to have this idea that, yeah, it's not just that we're getting punished for our evil. So then they just say, well, we should just impact as little as possible. But unfortunately, the person who calls it a cancer, they've, they've really gotten deep into this anti-impact framework. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah, that's a better answer, right? It's like, what do you do with a cancer is you get rid of the cancer. So even if we were having a very negative impact on Earth, you would never use that analogy. You would just say, well, like, 
we are doing this destructive activity and we want to figure out a way not to do it while still benefiting. But you would never say, you can never say about the organism you care about that it is a cancer. Great. Yes, sir. In the back. What if I can say four very quickly? Do Will you <laughs> accept four myths? Okay. Okay. So, you know, number one is climate is becoming more dangerous. We're far safer than ever from climate, thanks to what I call fossil fuel climate mastery. Uh, maybe I'll even get more. But, you know, another one is just that today's level of CO2 and temperature is unprecedented and high. In fact, it's very low in terms of the history of the planet. And we could have, we could live on any planet that's ever existed. And even when CO2 is 15 times higher, temperatures are much higher. It would just be a rapid transition. We might not want to, but there's no such thing as CO2 making the earth unlivable. That's very important. Um, number three is far more cold related deaths than heat related deaths. Number four is that um, warming is expected to occur and has occurred more in colder regions at colder times of day and in colder seasons. So it's like a global thawing thing, not the equator getting super hot. Uh, another one is that it's uh, warming is a, is a diminishing, you get diminishing returns on more CO2 in terms of warming. So it looks like this, it doesn't look like this, it's got logarithmic or diminishing effect. And then that the particular scenarios, even by the very biased UN, uh, none of them are, are truly problematic if you factor in climate mastery. So none of the things they talk about with sea levels say, they talk about three feet in a century in extreme projections. We have 100 million people already living below high tide sea levels. So those are the six facts, I would say. Time for one more question. Our virtual audience. Perfect. I'd say that most of us who joined today did so because we agree with your position. When this is over, we then go out and deal with the real world, which has been indoctrin indoctrinated by the mainstream media. What is our 30-second elevator pitch to plant the seed with others and encourage them to at least consider the content of this presentation? I'll give you two of them. So one, and you're going to think this is self-serving and not very effective, but it's the most effective, which is just, hey, like, I heard this really interesting presentation by this guy, Alex Epstein, who thought about this stuff in a different way. He said, yes, we do impact climate, but fossil fuels have benefits that are far more significant than that. Check out his website, energytalkingpoints.com, or maybe even check out this book, Fossil Future, so, or watch this event. And, and it's very important I stress this because sharing seems quaint, but it's the most effective thing. So all movements involve mostly people sharing effective resources. What I do most is I try to create the world's best resources as much as possible free, like energytargetpoints.com is totally free, most of my stuff is totally free, or cheap resources like a book that you can get for $20 on Amazon, and then if you spread them, it's incredibly effective. So all you need to do is get people that have a remote amount of trust in you and just give some pitch that it's decent. The other thing is if you're in a conversation, you're trying to persuade people, the number one thing I would get focus on at the beginning is just get people to ask people and get agreement on, hey, would you agree that when we're thinking about fossil fuels and climate, we need to look carefully at both the benefits and the negative side effects. So we can't just look at the negatives of fossil fuels, we also have to look at the positives and we have to weigh them carefully. And if you do that, A, they're gonna agree to it and they're gonna start to see all these benefits, including all the climate related benefits. The other thing is they're gonna start weighing the side effects instead of treating them as just intrinsically evil. The way people think of climate is they think it's wrong for us to impact climate and the damage is infinite. That's part of why it's plausible. We should eliminate it at all costs. Whereas if you think of it clinically in an even-handed way, you just ask, hey, how big are these sea level rises gonna be? How big are these temperature increases gonna be? How big a deal is that? And then once you get people to weigh things and look at both benefits and side effects, the conversation will go much, much better. And they'll be open to these facts that we've shared. 
Well, we have on that point something that does cost $20, but the Heritage Foundation has <laughs> incurred that cost for you as, as a token of our friendship and also gratitude for Alex's work. So there's a copy of the book in the foyer for you. Alex, as I mentioned at the beginning, has graciously agreed to stick around, sign your book, talk with you a little bit. There's a reception out there as well. Most of all, I want to thank you for being here, those of you who join online, and please join me in giving Alex a great round of applause. Thank you.